Just a warning, we'll be talking about bodies and sexuality in this episode. So if you're listening with young kids around, this might be one you want to skip. It's got this really flexible neck and the, that leads into a bulbous wand. This is reporter Lux Alptrom, and she's showing me a sex toy. When you turn it on, the mouth starts some sucking on the clitoris, as if somebody is, is licking and sucking on your clitoris. This is Get Wired, and today we're talking about a little toy that raised big questions about sex toys and the tech world. A woman named Laura DiCarlo was not the first person to dream up a dual-stimulation sex toy, but I guess you could say the controversy around her changed the game. And what happened with her product line ultimately raised the question of whether an orgasm can really be optimized. Lux Alptrom joins the show today. She's been covering sex toys in the sex toy industry for more than a decade, and she watched this whole story play out. Lux, thanks for joining me on Get Wired. Yeah, thank you for having me. So to start off, let's talk about CES. CES is a giant technology trade show that's been going on for decades, and it's really all about promoting technology. It's in Las Vegas every January, and for a long time, it has been predominantly men who attended the show and present at the show. You'd see women there, but for a long time, they were relegated to the category of quote-unquote booth babes. They weren't necessarily in leadership positions. So I've gone to CES for the past 10 years, including this year, which was pre-COVID. So I've heard of conflicting numbers of how many sex health companies are here. I've heard some people But this year was a little different. There was a whole section for sex tech, and what was notable is that it was, quote-unquote, allowed in the health and wellness section this year. And at the helm of all this was Laura Haddock DiCarlo. I am Laura Haddock DiCarlo. I'm the founder and CEO of my namesake brand, Laura DiCarlo. And we make robotic products that help people to explore their sexuality. When I met her in January, she was glamorous, she was charming, and she was selling sex toys branded as the toys that are going to empower women's pleasure. And the company had this glass box truck that they were driving around Las Vegas, which I happened to go for a ride in. We'll figure it out when we get to enjoy the ride, aka there's going to be some bumps, okay. some turns, kind of just roll with it, seatbelt yourself. In. We, we rode around the strip for a while in, in the glass box truck, which uh, was pretty memorable. It was definitely kind of a, like, what kind of crazy things we can cook up that really get people's attention. Because it wasn't just about the marketing. It was about, like, letting everybody know that, hey, guess what? Sex tech is at CES. And it's valid. And they not only had a booth, but other sex tech companies had a booth, too. Here's Lux again. So suddenly to see not just Laura DiCarlo, but a number of sex tech companies, most of them pretty young companies, all in the wellness section having a presence at CES, I mean, that was really great. Right, because it's not like these sex tech companies hadn't tried before. I mean, they'd been trying for years to be taken seriously or even just be admitted to CES. One product designer and founder who I spoke to, T. Chang, said that she had tried a couple of times to get her company Crave into CES, and she'd been rejected. And then that changed this year. 
So when she saw Laura DiCarlo on the show floor, she threw her arms around her. It was like she had been trying to nudge this door open for years, and suddenly it was just thrown open. Hi, girl, this is the reason why we're here. I'm serious. This, we are here because of you. I'm so glad. Here's Laura. That made me really happy because I'm not the only one that's made headway in this space. I think she understands and I understand that it was a, a concentrated effort by all of us that all ships do rise with the tide. Lux, does this all sound right to you? Yeah. There was a pivotal change in how sex toys were handled at CES. Like, sex tech was now a part of the tech world. And it was treated as something to be taken seriously. And look, all of that was really awesome. Like, as somebody who's been in this space advocating for sex-related products to be taken seriously for over a decade now, like, love to see it. Love to see that change. And coming with all that real change was some serious hype for Laura Carlo and for the company Laura Carlo, because both of them together were seen as the reason why all of this happened. And if they're the ones who brought sex tech to CES, then their tech must be so amazing that it just forced this change to happen. But it turns out the story is a lot messier than that. And it actually goes back to the year before at CES, so CES 2019. Leading up to that CES, the company was a small upstart that nobody had heard of. And they submitted their debut product, the OSE, to the Robotics Innovation Awards. And they won. Temporarily. Uh, because what happened shortly after they received this acceptance letter is that they got a retraction letter that said, mm, actually, we've reviewed this again, and we've decided that your product doesn't actually qualify for this award. Like, I, I will note they were not the first sex toy or sex tech company to receive a CES award, but the fact that it was in the robotics category, it was recognizing this as almost as like hard science product. And, you know, they talked, Laura would talk about how they collected all this data about anatomy, about the distance from the vaginal opening to the clitoris and the distance of the vaginal opening to the G-spot, and that they were going to use this data to develop a toy that could fit any body possible. And they all, like, really hyped up the idea that this was different, that this was scientific, that this was robotic, by positioning this not as a vibrator, but as a biomimetic micro-robotic device. And what does that mean? So biomimetic means that it's designed to mimic human touch. Micro-robotics, that's a lot more complicated. Certainly in marketing sense, it's a pretty loose term that can mean a lot of different things. So a product like this being recognized not just as like a wellness innovation, but as a robotics innovation, was a pretty significant development at CES. And, you know, initially they get this award, and it's a really exciting moment for them. And the official story is that upon review, the Consumer Technology Association, which is the parent company for CES, decided that this product did not meet the requirements of a robotics innovation award. And that specifically, one of the reasons why it didn't meet those requirements was because it was obscene. And that was something that the Laura DiCarlo team dug their teeth into and went running with. Because now they could say, look, 
you are saying that this product, which is designed to make it easier for women to have orgasms, is obscene. And that means you're saying that female sexuality is obscene. And we have looked around your show, and we have seen that you think it's fine to have uh, VR porn, which is targeted usually towards heterosexual cis men, that you think that that is fine to have. So it comes time for CES 2019. And Laura DiCarlo sends out this press release. And their press release said, look, we were given an award and it was retracted. And it was retracted because of sexism. Because everybody knows CES is sexist. And that story just blew up. Yeah, it was in all of the major tech outlets. And we certainly reported on it here at Wired. Right. And on top of all the tech outlets who obviously care about CES, it was basically everywhere. Last year, when the trade group that runs CES said it was going to give her company an innovation award at this year's show and then decided to rescind the award because, oops, it was for a sex toy. And in fact, was going to be excluded from the show floor because it was deemed to be either immoral, obscene, indecent or profane. It does something that its creators really did not intend. It somehow pits men against women, industry leaders against an inventor. And all of this, all of this media attention, it wasn't even really focused on the product. It was focused on the retraction. It was focused on the work that Laura DiCarlo was doing for gender equity, both in the bedroom and in the tech boardroom. The final physical product didn't even exist at that point. No one had seen it, let alone used it. The hype actually got so intense that sight unseen, the Osei landed on Time's list of best inventions for 2019. Wow. I mean, I've certainly heard of products at CES not ever really shipping to consumers, but it's pretty crazy it landed on Time's list without even having been released yet. Yeah. I mean, by the time that list rolled around, they still had not sent out any review units to press. And it was kind of fascinating to watch because it feels like the media is always hungry for a feminist sex positive story, but a lot of journalists don't actually know anything about the sex toy industry or how sex toys work. And it almost didn't matter to anybody what the actual product was or what it did because the story around it was just so good and therefore the product must be good. And at this point, when was it actually supposed to be launch? Like, when was it supposed to become available? So it's it's interesting. According to the CES Innovation Award rules, if you win an Innovation Award in January, your product is supposed to be in shelves by, I think, April of that year. So this is the thing, like, yes, a lot of products show up at CES, and who knows when they'll wind up on shelves. But when you win this award, you're actually supposed to be making a commitment that your product will be something that people can hold in their hands, not long after, like a few months after you've officially won this award. But April 2019 came, and there was no product. And then June came, and... At that point, I'd kind of forgotten about them, but the company contacted me, actually, as part of their press tour, um, and I met with them, and there was no prototype to show. And they told me that they would mail me one in November of 2019, and November rolls around, and I contacted them, and suddenly it was, no, 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 you'll get the product in January of 2020. And then January rolls around, and instead of a product, I got a press release about how Laura DiCarlo was returning to CES. 
So now we're back to 2020, which is this year's CES, which is when you went for the ride in the glass box truck. And not only did they have the award that had been retracted for the Osei restored, but now they had two new awards, one for their product Bachi and one for their product Onda. And I was like, wait, wait, hold up. I have not seen one product. <laughs> and now suddenly there are three products and they all have awards? And then, you know, attached to the email was a 90-second video. And I was like, okay, cool. This promo video, this is going to show me the product. And I watch it, and it's 90 seconds of, like, feminism. When we're all comfortable in our own identity, we go out into the world and we do great things. Orgasm gap, breaking the glass ceiling. We started a movement. Let the world know who owns your pleasure. And virtually no video of the product. They started pre-orders in November, November 2019, and this was actually part of their press release for CES 2020. They're like, we opened pre-orders in November, and within minutes, we've made $3 million. We've sold all of this stuff. And I was like, okay, are you just scamming people then? And I should also say that one of the other things that, that gave me pause was that when they started doing pre-orders, the product was listed at $290. That is really expensive for a sex toy. It's not unheard of, but the trend in more recent years has been to be sub-200 and sometimes even sub-100. So to be on the verge of $300 for this sex toy, I mean— how good can an orgasm really be? Sure. So I started thinking about what goes into the production of sex toys and specifically what went into the production of the Osei. And I found this guy, Gary Akeborn, who runs a factory that manufactures sex toys and had actually spent several months thinking that he was going to be the person who was going to be manufacturing the Osei. I have a company called Wingpo International. And since 2004, we have had our own manufacturing facility in southern China. And over those years, we've kind of made, developed, created some of the, sort of the best-selling sex toys in the world, along with some of the biggest brands. So we're kind of the secret factory behind a lot of the companies. And so he's involved in the development of sex toys from a variety of points, from designing to production to actually marketing the products as well. We, we quietly smile when award ceremonies come out or products get launched because, you know, we're kind of the guys sat behind making them or designing them or helping bringing those products to market. So I asked Gary how he actually puts sex toys together. So each toy, it's on a production line, but because there's no automation in what we do, every single one of your toys has been hand-soldered by someone, has had the wires connected by someone else, has had the motor put in it by hand. You know, we even have a test lab a laboratory in the factory where we can do all of the consumer testing. I can do drop tests, waterproof testing, age testing, scratching, battery, everything. So Gary flew out to meet with Laura DiCarlo in February 2019. He says that since they'd already had a CES award given to them and then retracted, that he expected to be shown the Osei in a completed form, which he could quote to manufacture. I flew out to their offices and I went and met them in person. And the impression I got when I came out of there was that actually they didn't have anything. So the the, the joke I had with them afterwards, because I am quite direct, was um, the fact how the hell did you win an award when you didn't even have a product? So eventually the Osei is created 
And I remember getting an email about it in late 2019. And then it shipped out in early 2020 to everyone who pre-ordered it. And you got one, right, Lux? That That's actually what we heard in the beginning of the episode. Yes, I got my review unit in April of 2020. I am actually holding it in my hand right now. Um, and it's got it's got kind of a round base with this suction section that goes over your clitoris and then a long neck with a sort of bulb at the end. And that's the part that's for insertion. And so, okay, I want, I want you to hear this. So I'll turn it on. And here is the suction part. The bulb that's for insertion, it has this finger-looking thing that starts moving up and down to stimulate the G-spot. Um, and so I'm going to turn that on now. It's kind of loud. I mean, it's it's really loud. It kind of looks like, you know, if like there was a tiny little alien inside of it trying to emerge, like in the movie Alien. It's just like, it's, it's, it's there, it's trying to get out. It's poking through the skin, just barely. Okay, let me turn this thing off. So I tried the Osei three separate times. And only one of those times was I actually able to make it hands-free, which was a big selling claim that uh, Laura DiCarlo was making about this product. This idea that you could mold it to your body so that you you wouldn't have to hold it there in place while it was pleasuring you. So only one time was I able to get it hands-free. And when it was hands-free, it was actually excruciatingly painful because the little nub was just digging into me at a really painful angle. Um, so that that was not, not great for me. I went online and a lot of the reviews I was seeing, and there weren't many, but a lot of the ones that I was seeing suggested that I was not alone in finding this product to be not, not that great. <laughs> Like, for instance, here is journalist Jess Joho from Mashable. Even before I got the toy, a sample of the toy for review, I got on a call with Laura DiCarlo, and she kind of took me through finding your fit, which is this huge part of it. And she made it sound like, you know, okay, it's going to take a little bit of a learning curve, but then, you know, we're going to get it, and then you're never going to have to do it again. So I did try everything. You know, I there's also videos online that I went through, and it was truly a nightmare. I have reviewed up to like 50 toys and this is the one that physically harmed me. <laughs> um it felt like like pulverizing. It was truly like and I was following you know I'm I'm not this is my first rodeo so to say. <laughs> so I uh was doing my best and and I just couldn't imagine how any normal consumer would be able to do this in a way that didn't feel, to be honest, a little violating for me. And that is the thing about the human body. Um, it is very, very unique. Like, there are many toys that just work for one person, don't work for the other person, and then it just feels like it's for nobody instead of everybody. Laura DiCarlo says she got a lot of feedback on the design of the toy. I talked to hundreds of people myself on the phone, on Zoom, and um, they sent us photos of what their shape looked like. We found that where the neck came out from where the clitoral portion was, was too close to the clitoral portion. But even to this day, Laura maintains what she told Jess. 
from the very moment we started marketing this product, um, I've always said it's always going to be about education. It's going to be, you know, this has the potential to deliver a really amazing orgasm, but there is going to have to be a learning curve. So Laura markets this as a universal fit, but in order to get that fit, you have to get the right angle. Maybe you have to take some online classes, possibly talk to Laura herself. <laughs> like, they're making this experience so much more difficult for the user than a regular old vibrator. Yeah, it sounds like you need a concierge service to make this thing work for you. So they've also said this product is engineered specifically to optimize your orgasm, right? It's been advertised at this intersection of feminism and tech, as you pointed out. So you talked to a sex toy historian to better understand how we got here from the vibrators advertised as curing indigestion in the 1930s to the sex toy Tupperware parties of the 70s. That's right after the break. So Lux, it seems like a large part of this uncritical enthusiasm for the OSE in 2019 was a reflection of our culture having basically ignored sex toys or maybe not taking them seriously for a really long time and then kind of jumping uncritically on board with one that was really hyped up but turned out to be kind of meh. So how did we get to this point? Well, so even more generally... We are at a point right now where sex toys are talked about as being for pleasure. When we talked about sex toys, if we talked about sex toys, we needed to justify them as being about our physical health. Okay, that sound that you just heard, which sounds like like the lawnmower or something, that's a vibrator from around 1905. That's sex toy historian Hallie Lieberman, and she's showing me a very old vibrator. Patent was in 1902 um, from Racine, Wisconsin, which was the vibrator capital of the world in the early 1900s. So the vibrator that Hallie showed me is this big motorized piece of machinery that's metal with a big wooden handle and a rubber attachment that vibrates. And Hallie says it weighs about three pounds. So... Hallie says that vibrators first come on the scene in the late 1800s with Joseph Mortimer Granville, and he actually touts it within the medical community. He actually said vibrate the perineum um, to um, fix your impotence, which would work to this day. But what happened was Granville introduced um, his vibrator um, for all sorts of treatments to be used for men. So the medical community was into it. They accepted this. For a time, at least. Uh, because in 1905, the American Medical Association decides that vibrators cannot cure impotence. So the companies start marketing them as solving other medical issues, um, from headaches to constipation. See, advertising these products as sex toys, that was illegal. So you get these ads that are just, like, hilariously suggestive. Hallie told me about her favorite ad, which is from the 1930s. You know, a drawing of a woman with a low-cut shirt, and she's vibrating her stomach, and it says curing indigestion. But it didn't say they were for masturbation or for sexual uses. It was just like, these things exist, cure your uterine problems, cure your constipation with this uh, rectal dilator. And it's like, huh, that seems pretty sexual. So General Electric 
put out vibrator ads next to the toaster ads and the mixer ads. And as Holly pointed out to me, if they had advertised them for sexual pleasure. I mean, that would have been, they would have gone to jail. Like, you couldn't do it. But eventually, you know, 1960s, 1970s, feminism rolls around. And now women are thinking about how to get free from men. Vibrators, well, they seem like one way to do that. You know, now suddenly you don't need a partner to orgasm. And the sex educator, Betty Dodson, she actually helped kickstart the vibrator movement. She started liberating masturbation groups where she would have a bunch of women come over. They would sit in a circle, they would take off their clothes, and they would look at their genitals together. So it's like a Tupperware party, but with vibrators. Exactly. And for many of these women, this was likely the first time that they'd really prioritized understanding their anatomy. From there, vibrators grow in popularity. And there's a lot more openness about the fact that these products are for sex. But, you know, they're still underground in a lot of states. Throughout the 1990s, designers are still mostly men, and even toys that are geared for pleasure for clits and vaginas still have these very phallic shapes. They're crafted in the image of the male body. So even though you have more women and queer people who are setting up retail shops and selling sex toys, the people who are designing and manufacturing the sex toys, that's still mostly men and a lot of cisgender straight men specifically. That starts changing in the 2000s when we start to see more and more women designing sex toys. And as a result, we finally start to see a lot more vibrators that aren't like penises. And is that because people are starting to come around to the idea that it doesn't have to be this phallic-shaped thing that's going to give people pleasure? Or is it that, like, that kind of design is meant to hide the sort of overt sexuality of these toys? Well, I think it's a little of both. Because the fact is, the penis is not necessarily optimized for vaginal orgasm. But once you start making these products look more innocuous, then it becomes easier for them to just kind of slide into mainstream culture uh, and to get into more stores that weren't just sex toy shops. And, you know, to get them in pop culture, too. Like, um, the most notable example, of course, is in Sex and the City. There's this episode where Charlotte actually gets addicted to the rabbit vibe. Hello? Harry, it's Charlotte. Oh, I'm really sorry, but I'm going to have to cancel. Yeah, I'm totally wiped out. Uh-huh. Wiped out. That was Charlotte speak for, I'm spending the night with my vibrator. I mean, on the negative side, that episode still plays up this idea of sex toys as, like, something you can get addicted to. But that really made people want the rabbit vibe. So they couldn't help but wonder about the rabbit? <laughs> you could say. You could say that, yeah. And so as we're seeing sex toys be treated as more of a normal part of life in pop culture, we're also seeing a change happen in the legal arena as well. So now in most of America, you can sell sex toys and no one will put you in jail. By uh, the 2000s, uh, the first decade uh, of the 21st century, you start to see sex toys in like Walgreens, CBS, retail stores like that. That was a huge shift. And that gets us to today. We're progressive in the sense of we accept sex toys as sexual stimulation devices way more than we used to for 
heterosexuals, for people in committed relationships, all that kind of stuff. But Facebook and Instagram don't allow sex toy advertisements. And that probably helps explain why people got so riled up by the retracted award at CES. Considering all of the anxieties around sex toys, it sounds like Laura DiCarlo was really poised to have an impact. Like maybe they could help normalize it and help make it high tech and a better experience for people. But then right out of the gate, it kind of disappointed. So where are they now? So it's interesting because like many tech companies, they are still kind of just rolling past their stumbles. Um, They're already on to new products. They've Within, I think, six months, they released a upgraded Osei, the Osei 2. Uh, they also have the Filare and the Carezza, which I have not seen, so I cannot comment on. Um, and perhaps most notably, they have brought on the actress Cara Delevingne as a co-owner. So... In some ways, their their greatest invention really was this hype machine. And that hype machine is chugging along regardless of whether the actual tech they're selling is any good. Would you say that anything positive has come out of the Laura DiCarlo saga? Well, I mean, I think it, it can't be understated that they helped push for sex toy companies and sex tech companies to be included in the wellness section at CES. Now, I think that's really big. I think that's a huge step towards normalizing sex toys, normalizing sexual pleasure as as a part of life. And I think that, you know, they absolutely were part of making that happen. For sex toys to prove themselves as tech, they had to kind of get this makeover and be like, no, look, we have fancy degrees. We're getting all this money. Like, we can speak your language. And that was what suddenly gave sex toys this respectability, even if the products weren't necessarily changing that dramatically. And what's funny is that a lot of the language of tech, a lot of the ethos of tech, and specifically the ethos of venture capital, is so much more skeezy than anything that traditionally happened in the sex toy industry. Because you couldn't get investment, you really had to make a product that A, would get out to market quickly, and B, that people would buy. Laura DiCarlo actually ended up taking the first version of the OSA off the market and releasing the OSA 2. But she told me she doesn't have regrets about releasing a first version of the OSA that didn't work for a lot of people because she otherwise wouldn't have had the resources to improve it. The fact is we're, we're a startup and we need to be able to survive in order to see this mission actually fulfilled. And in order to do that, we need to survive. And we weren't going to be able to, to fund an entire uh, study to figure out exactly what all of these, these needs and these requests and this feedback was without actually launching the company and launching the product. So effectively, she charged people nearly $300 to be beta testers. And look, like that kind of testing, it's, it's not unheard of in startups. And there's one thing that Jess, you know, the reviewer from Mashable, that she said when we talked about the OSA, that's totally stuck in my head. I think tech has this obsession with optimizing. And the idea of optimizing human sexuality is just fundamentally, diametrically opposed to each other. Sexuality is not something that you can optimize. It's something that you have to explore that, you know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not, and both are okay. 
And, you know, there's just a lot of this idea with high-tech toys of tracking, of data, as if if we only had enough data, then that would fix all of the cultural problems behind why we can't have good sex. And we're clearly desperate for ways to have better sex, right? Because otherwise, the OSE or the concept of the OSE wouldn't have gotten so popular. And the way that we've come to fix our needs in society is with tech solutionism, right? We've started using tech and data to optimize our bodies. But when it comes to sex, we sometimes don't even have like a low-tech understanding of our own bodies. I mean, we don't even have sex education in all of our schools. And so in some ways, that means the stakes of the OSE were higher than other emerging tech products. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to spend $700 on Juicero, right? Like, it's kind of a scam, you might feel ripped off. It sucks. But if you get ripped off because of Juicero, you're not going to suddenly say, I'm never going to drink juice again. But people have a different relationship to sex toys. And if you have a sex toy that overpromises and underdelivers and is incredibly expensive, you actually might not blame the product. You might blame yourself. Because you might think like, wow, I spent $300 on this product and it didn't work for me and it had all this hype. There must be something wrong with me. Right, but there, there isn't something wrong with you, right? You're not holding it wrong, which reminds me of what Steve Jobs once said back in 2010 when there was a problem with the iPhone. And this is a really personal product and the customer is right. Sometimes the tech is what's wrong. Lux, thank you for joining me on the show. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's it's been great. I appreciate it. And now it's time for our closing segment, Six Word Sci-Fi. Every month, Wired asks you all to send us sci-fi stories told in only six words. And on the podcast, you're going to hear audio versions of some of our favorites. Here's our producer, Ben Montoya. This week, our Six Word Sci-Fi comes from Cameron S., The theme is The Next Great Crowdsourced Project. Smelt decommissioned weapons into musical instruments. episode of Get Wired was hosted by me, Lauren Good. You can follow me on Twitter, at Lauren Good. This episode was reported by Lux Alptrom. You can follow her on Twitter, at Lux Alptrom. Thanks also to Laura DiCarlo, Gary Acorn, Jess Joho, and Hallie Lieberman for coming on the show. This episode was produced by Anna Stitt, Mickey Capper, Ben Montoya, and Asia Simpson. Mixing and scoring was done by Hannes Brown. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton Brown. Nina Gensler-Debs, Sarah Fallon, and Megan Greenwell edited this episode. Scott Rosenfield is Wired Site Director, and our Editor-in-Chief is Nicholas Thompson. You can sign up for podcast updates at wired.com forward slash podcast email. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> 